0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Vivek Murthy. He was on the podcast recently giving us lots of helpful information on the practicalities of the coronavirus. I loved talking to him, and today we're talking about his new book, Together. Before we get to it, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Saqqara, who helped make today's episode possible. Our food editor, Caitlin, has been working hard to churn out cooking tips and tricks and recipes of all kinds to help us get through this quarantine. And a lot of us are getting to know our kitchens a little better, but there are always days or weeks where I don't feel the inspiration to cook or have the energy or the ingredients on hand. That's where Saqqara comes in. Sakara Life is a wellness company that believes eating healthy can and should be enjoyable and they believe that nutritious food has the power to help keep us well. They offer an organic plant-based nutrition program and they're still delivering their fresh, plant-rich meals nationwide. Everything shows up at your door, ready to eat. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com/goop or enter code GOOP20 at checkout. That's s a k a r a.com/goop to get 20% off your first order. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it,
1: want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing, that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming. We turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Vivek Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his MD and MBA degrees from Yale. In his tenure, he worked. With thousands of commissioned Corps officers to strengthen the Corps, protect the nation from Ebola and Zika, and to respond to the Flint water crisis, major hurricanes, and frequent healthcare shortages in rural communities. He is the author of a book called Together, which just came out. It's a beautiful book. And it's based on his experience as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States as he talked to people across the country and found that one of the most pervasive and consistent themes was an epidemic of loneliness. Today, we talk about what that means in this COVID-19 world and what it could mean for us after.
1: When you give somebody else the permission to just be themselves, when you listen deeply to them, without judgment, what you are doing is you're giving them the opportunity to be seen. And that can be an incredibly powerful experience and a highly effective antidote to loneliness.
0: Let's get right to my chat with Dr. Vivek Murthy. Are you still in Miami or are you in D.C.?
1: No, I'm still in Miami. So I'm, I'm here okay. with my parents and my sister and my brother-in-law and my wife and our two kids and my grandmother. So amazing! Uh, it's, it's really nice to actually be all together. It's, you know, it's chaotic for sure at times. And, you know, I've done, I've done like these, like, like national town halls for like while sitting on the floor of my bathroom next to the bathtub, because <laughs> I couldn't find any other place to be quiet. I've like, Done like re- live radio interviews in the car because that was literally the only place that I could <laughs> find that was quiet. <laughs> so I'm like, I find myself like all of us just trying to adapt. So
0: yeah, I think it's one of it's one silver lining is that aiming for perfection in anything is a silly is silly right now, and we're all making do in very very human ways.
1: Yes, and I, I really like that about this moment. In the sense that I feel like we've given ourselves more permission to show up in our work lives as, as real people who are dealing with everything from schooling our children to managing our parents and spouses to just dealing with the uncertainty of now. There's something, yeah. there's something real about seeing, seeing people in, with their kids running around in the background and seeing them in T-shirts uh, with their hair disheveled because that's just how all of us really are. Um, There's a realness that I like.
0: I agree. And it also points to how untenable the way that we were all operating it was, both in the way that we had this idea that we could compartmentalize our lives so cleanly. And then, of course, all the fractures in society that are so clear now in terms of, you know, the systemic failures to keep us all safe, make sure that we have paid leave, paid family leave, etc. You know, I think we all many of us knew it was there It was just the busyness of life meant that we never attended to it. It was just sort of this thing that we knew we needed to deal with. And now, quite clear how many how many systems we need to fix on the other side.
1: That's absolutely true. Absolutely.
0: Well, I loved your book. And wow, I mean, so prescient, right, that you would sort of be bookending, this entire COVID 19 adventure, right? Both as working in the government until early in the Trump administration to now, you know, a book about essentially what we're all experiencing physically right now, but have been experiencing emotionally and mentally for a really long time this idea of profound loneliness and isolation. So, are you psychic? <laughs>
1: I'm most certainly not. When I wrote the book, I (laughs) had no idea that we would be in the midst of a pandemic and that this pandemic would require us to, at such a global level, physically separate ourselves from each other. But what I was reacting to in writing the book was a, a deeper well of loneliness that has existed for a number of years in society and that during that time has been impacting people's health and their sense of well-being and how they show up in the office and at school and for their families. And it was a largely silent phenomenon. But What I worry about now is that unless we do something differently, we stand to deepen the loneliness and separation that we're feeling. And I worry about us incurring a social recession that would be just as important and consequential as the economic recession that we're worried about
0: hmm So this idea, obviously, now people who are alone are more alone than ever. I wonder, and just sort of as an aside before we get into the the meat of your book, whether, weirdly, the fact that we're all in this position and that there's no longer – like, I guess it would be called FOMO, you know, some version of FOMO or this idea of, like, I'm alone, but everyone else is together – Now that that's been abolished, I guess, do you think that this is as devastating for the people who are already gripped with loneliness, or do you think that weirdly it has leveled the playing field? Does that make sense?
1: It does. It does. And uh, at least I think what you're pointing to is a really interesting and powerful double-edged sword, if you will, about this pandemic, which is that on the one hand, it does have the uh, potential to separate us more and to exacerbate loneliness such that if you're somebody who was struggling before with loneliness and you find yourself now confined to your house or your apartment alone and unable to go see people, this could make for a more difficult circumstance. But on the other hand, I actually think that there is an extraordinary opportunity for us because we are in the same storm. We may be in different boats that have different capacities to handle it, but we're going through a common experience right now that is very unusual. Most of the time, what happens in life is if we're going through a hard time, we look around us and we think, oh, well, everyone else seems to be doing well and they're somehow coping. And if I look at their Mm -hmm. social media feeds, they seem to be having a great time, but I'm the only one who's struggling. And that makes it harder to open up and to talk. But this is one of those moments where we can rest assured that the vast, vast majority of people are in fact struggling to make sense of the turmoil turmoil around them, and whether that's trying to figure out how to homeschool their kids, whether that's feeling more lonely and isolated than they usually are, whether that's trying to figure out why it is that they're so distracted and fatigued all the time and not recognizing that it's the stress that they're under, that all of us are under, that just manifests in different ways. So I do think that the common experience creates an opportunity, for us to reach out and to connect with each other, to actually be more understanding of each other and to see each other as whole people, having a human experience, as opposed to how we normally see each other, which is through the narrow lens of our work relationship or you know our a specific social context.
0: Yeah, I love your definition of, of loneliness too, where you talk about it as being so distinct, related but distinct from isolation and you write, Loneliness is the subjective feeling that you're lacking the social connections you need. It can feel like being stranded, abandoned, or cut off from the people with whom you belong, even if you're surrounded by other people. What's missing when you're lonely is a feeling of closeness, trust, and affection of genuine friends, loved ones, and community. And that's so relatable, right? Because, you know, I think that when I think of some relationships that I had in my 20s before I got married, et cetera, like those those relationships made me feel more profoundly lonely even though i was theoretically with someone than being by myself like it is it is such a i almost feel like the i feeling of loneliness is exacerbated sometimes by theoretically being in community when you don't feel seen and you don't feel validated it's such an important distinction because I think that sometimes people are like, "How how could I possibly feel lonely? I'm, you know." And and you talk about this a bunch in the book. Like I'm in a freshman class with thousands of other people. I'm sitting here with hundreds of people. How I'm not alone, right?
1: Yeah, at least this is such an important point that you're raising because we think about loneliness as a stereotype of the person sitting alone in a corner at a party. But loneliness doesn't usually look like that. This is one of the reasons why it's so invisible to us is that loneliness can manifest as irritability and anger. It can look like depression and withdrawal. It can look like anxiety. It can look like many different things. And what's also, I think, so important to realize about loneliness is that when we don't feel that we can be ourselves with other people, when we feel like we have to wear a mask because Mm -hmm. we're trying to be who somebody else wants us to be or because we think society expects something of us and we want to meet that expectation, but it's not really who we are, those experiences actually make us lonelier, even though we may be interacting with other people. There is something extraordinarily liberating and fulfilling about being able to show up as yourself and that's why when we experience friendships or family uh, members who with whom we can just be who we are where we don't have to parse our our words or we don't have to try and put up an illusion of who we are be funnier than we actually are or seem more interested than we really are it can feel extraordinary there's i think of any really important need that all human beings have a few needs in fact i think that are core to all of us we all want to be seen for who we are we all want to know that we matter and we all want to be loved Mm -hmm. those three things are essential to the human experience and when you give somebody else the permission to just be themselves when you listen deeply to them without judgment what you are doing is you're giving them the opportunity to be seen. And that can be an incredibly powerful experience and a highly effective antidote to loneliness.
0: Mm. And it doesn't require, it, it has nothing to do with the number and community too. You know, I think growing up in Montana in the woods, it's funny, I'm very introverted. My brother's very extroverted. He mm. would have said probably that our childhood was lonely i would never felt lonely cuz we had horses and books and i don't i don't need a lot of people but i do i need exactly what you said to feel like myself and to be seen in a way that resonates with who i perceive myself to be and not as someone else and i think too you know the part when you talked at length what's her name claudia i can't remember the college freshman who set up those dinners Oh, Serena B. N. Yeah, Serena was, I loved that because I found college very, very lonely. And it sounds like I'm not alone, like staggering numbers of people find it lonely. And I felt like it was that way primarily because it's such a period of, or it seemed that way for my peers, such a period of sort of a redefinition that a lot of people had left high school and maybe high school had been bad or hard and that they were redefining themselves and there was so much posturing and positioning that I like I couldn't ground in it. I couldn't figure out who people were, and or who my people were. And as she mentioned, it's like so much surface conversation, which I don't do well in. And it was really hard. That was the time in my life when I was probably most depressed. So it was really n- nice to see that that see that reflected in your book, and also that it's so profoundly universal like staggeringly universal, do you think that that's an essential life? Do you think that we're supposed to have those moments of definition and that we're supposed to have those moments of feeling separate? Or is it a totally useless exercise? Like what do you, is that what helps us form who we are or should we never feel that way?
1: It's a good question. I, I, I would find it helpful to think of this analogous to to hunger or thirst. We as human beings want to remain nourished with enough food. We want to have enough water in our system so we're not dehydrated. But that doesn't mean that we should never feel hunger or thirst. When we mm-hmm. feel hunger or thirst, it's just a natural signal that alerts us that we're starting to drift slowly off course. And it's an, a request from our body to to respond with food or water that will bring us back into equilibrium and similarly loneliness in and of itself is a natural signal that we will all experience during our lifetimes and it's a signal that something we are that something that we need for survival which is human relationships is missing and if we respond to that by seeking out a friend or by visiting a family member or taking a moment to write to someone we care about then that may alleviate that feeling of loneliness. The problem comes when that loneliness persists for a long period of time, because when it does, then it can it can have a significant impact on our mood, can impact our mental and physical health. Times of adversity, whether it's starting college or whether it's moving to a new city or whether it's dealing with the physical separation of a pandemic, these can be stressors on our system but the, what matters is how we respond to those moments. If we respond in the right way, we can actually use those moments to deepen, in fact, our connection to ourself and to others. You know, at least you mentioned this story about Serena from the book, which is mm-hmm. uh, such a powerful story. I, it, was, it was one that resonated so deeply with me because I, as an introvert, also felt deeply alone when I was in college, especially my freshman year. And I had a really, really hard time. And Serena in this story, when she goes to the University of Pennsylvania, you know, having grown up in Michigan with a family that loved her and with a circle of close friends, she felt suddenly all alone and felt that she was somehow compelled to try to be somebody that she was not. as she went to these mixers and large orientation gatherings that were just that are part of how college begins for everyone. And what she needed to do was to recognize that all of those experiences were making her feel insecure about who she was, and that as that insecurity deepened, that she was finding an even greater desperation inside to try to form a connection and be funnier or be more popular or do something that would allow her to build a connection with somebody else, even if it didn't really feel like her. And the more that happened, the worse she felt. And so what she ended up having to do was she ended up having to take some time out, and this ended up being this summer after freshman year, and just go back home and re herself in experiences that felt good, that reminded her of who she was. And for her, that was beekeeping. It was spending time with family. It was joining a yoga class where she was both working with her body, but also building these wonderful relationships with people in the, in the yoga class. And that experience was transformative for her because she felt that she was able to let the noise around her settle. She was able to see who she was, and she was reminded of how good it felt to just show up as who you are. And that's why when she got back to campus, she decided that she would try to create spaces where people could really be themselves, where they could talk about what they were really feeling and experiencing without fear of judgment. And that's why she created these gatherings called space gatherings, which were just very simply opportunities to show up as who you are. And they had a powerful effect on her and on dozens, if not hundreds of students on campus. But the larger story is a reminder to me that whether it's, in college or whether it's in other parts of our life that there are going to be times for all of us when our world is turned upside down when we leave the people that we love and where we're forced to figure out how to build new connections and the great risk in those moments is that our connection to ourself our comfort with ourself our conviction that we are people who have value to bring to the world that can be shaken and the more our connection to self is shaken, the actually, the harder it becomes to connect with other people because we're always trying to be somebody else. or seeking validation. We don't feel comfortable showing up as who we are.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's so true, and and then it just grows, right? That it's sort of a, it's a a bad. I don't know if it's like an, a spiral, but it feels like. The, less, the fewer moments of resonance you have with other people, the less you seek those moments of resonance until you feel quite separate and isolated and cut off.
1: Yes, yes. And, and you're, you're perfectly describing the downward spiral of loneliness, which is that loneliness begets more loneliness. The longer our loneliness lasts, the more we start to turn our focus inward because we feel unsafe and we feel threatened. We also experience an erosion of our self-esteem because the longer we're lonely, the more we come to believe that that's because we're not likable or not lovable or deficient in some way. And if we're not careful, that downward spiral can actually pull us further and further away from other people exactly at the time when we need to reach out and connect. And that's actually why it turns out that service is such a powerful antidote to loneliness Because acts of service shift our focus from ourselves to other people in the context of a positive interaction, but they also reaffirm to us that we have value to add to the world. And if you look at the current moment in which we're living, there is no shortage of opportunities to serve. While we may not be able to go to a a soup kitchen or volunteer at Habitat for Humanity, what we can do is reach out to a neighbor who might be struggling. We can call up a friend uh, who may have been dealing with loneliness or depression or anxiety before this to check on them, to let them know that we still see them, but we still are thinking of them and we want to know they're okay. And we can even deliver food to a coworker who may be struggling to homeschool their children and telework. At the same time, all of us are struggling in some way. And this moment has highlighted more so than ever, that we truly do need each other. We are an interdependent species. And when we are together, we are truly better and we can go farther than when we're seeking to just go it alone.
0: Yeah. And there have certainly been some bummers in the way that people have behaved sort of in these COVID times and obviously predating COVID as well. But it's also just Uh, beautiful to see how good people are and how they thrill at the chance to help, you know, looking at, you know, posts, some of the posts on Nextdoor, which are sort of a call and response to needs and to see how many people are dying to help is, is really beautiful. But even those, even requesting or asking is so hard. And I don't know whether it's because None of us, we we struggle to identify our needs or it's pride. What do you think it is that stalls out that system of feeling like it's okay to ask? And I know, I loved the example in the book. I can't remember what they're called, are they huts? The way that they set up sheds, was it the men's shed? Was that the program? Yeah, like, can you talk a little bit about the difference between men and women and loneliness and maybe asking for connection and then some of the effective antidotes?
1: Yes. So I think part of the reason why it's so hard to ask for help, and I say this as somebody who has a hard time asking for help, (laughs) is that it's scary to be vulnerable. And when we ask for help, It feels like the message we're sending to somebody else is that I can't do this on my own. I'm not enough. I can't hack it. And something's wrong with me. That's why I need you to come fix it. That's how it feels like sometimes when we're asking for help. It feels like we're exposing ourselves. The fact that we're just not, we don't have it all together. But the reality is that those moments of vulnerability are extraordinary moments of courage and strength in the following way, that when we summon the courage to be vulnerable, that's not an easy thing to do, but it actually makes other people feel more comfortable. And it often empowers and encourages them to be open and to be real themselves. And if you want to understand how that works, you only have to think back to an experience you've had where somebody came to you and in a very open and vulnerable way, just told you what they were struggling with and asked for some help. And think about how that made you feel. Think about whether or not you were more likely to be open with them about how you were really doing after they shared it so openly with you. So it turns out that contrary to how society has told us that vulnerability is a source of weakness, it turns out that vulnerability may be our greatest strength. It may be the way through which we connect with each other in a very human way. And you can really only be vulnerable if you have the courage Mm -hmm. to stand up and to be who you are. So I always admire when people step up to do that, whether it's in small private moments or in the public sphere, because that vulnerability is one of the clearest windows we have into our humanity. And we need to see that part of each other more often. It reminds us that we're connected, that we're having a shared experience.
0: We'll get back to Vivek Murthy in just a second. Since I've been cooped up at home, I've been on a bit of a food swing. I'm trying to be a little more mindful around meals and making time to sit down and enjoy what I'm eating. This is easier said than done considering I'm working from my bedroom right now and I have two little boys running around all day. One thing that obviously makes breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home easier is having some already made meals on hand. And if you're looking for a delivery option, Sakara Life is still delivering their organic nutrition program. They deliver fresh, ready-to-eat meals nationwide and right to your door. Their menu, of chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, changes weekly and is designed to support overall health. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. Right now, Saqqara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakaracom goop or enter code goop20 at checkout. That's S-a dot slash goop to get 20% off your first order. Over the past several years, we've held eight intensive in-person wellness summits called InGoop Health. They have been some of my favorite days. If you've ever attended one, you know how fun they are and how goopy they get. And also that they are highly produced affairs. The team pays attention to every single detail. And the gift bag at the end of the day is legendary. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the community that has formed around Ingoop Health, full of people who want to connect more deeply with themselves, the people in their lives, and the world around them. Right now, this community feels more important than ever. And for a long time, we've wanted to find a way to make it, and the spirit of Ingoop Health, more accessible to people wherever they're at. So we've decided to host a digital series of Ingoop Health sessions each Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time, me or gp will kick off a one-hour wellness session with an expert we admire we'll cover spirituality workshops more intimate conversations workout classes and practical effective takeaway tools for navigating this time the sessions will be live streamed on youtube initially and they are free to join if you can we hope you'll consider making a donation to doctors without borders i can't wait for our next session on wednesday may 20th gwyneth is hosting with taryn toomey Taryn is going to lead a 25-minute workout. It's her signature fitness method known as the class, which incorporates cardio, some meditation, and therapeutic yelling, which we could all benefit from right about now. After the workout, GP is going to pop on for a quick Q&A with Taryn. I hope you can join us this week and every Wednesday for the series. To learn more, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. You can also watch our previously recorded sessions there. That's goopcom slash in health Back to my chat with Dr. Vivek Murthy. When you think about post-COVID world and a time when we won't be wearing face coverings and we'll be able to gather, and the fear or threat of this is past us, and I understand that might take some time, but what are new? What are the social structures? that you would like to see, or what do you hope that we bring forward from this time, either in response to it or as an extension of it? What, what do you think that we need to do socially to start to curb the, the rampant loneliness in our culture?
1: Well, Elise, I think this is an incredible opportunity for us to step back and take stock of the role that people and relationships play in our life. There are a few more stark wake-up calls, I think, that we've had to just how important people are and to how much we depend on each other to really get by. And I'm not just talking about our dependence and our need for family and friends. I'm also talking about how we depend so much on the grocery store workers who help us pay for our food and, and get groceries, how we depend on people in coffee shops and restaurants, how... The, the folks who collect our garbage and help keep our neighborhoods clean are actually essential in an even deeper way than we may have realized. It has become so clear through COVID-19 that we rely so much on each other and the absence of being able to be with and see each other has had serious consequences for us. So I think coming out of this, one of my hopes is that we can bring this clarity this renewed appreciation for people back to our day-to-day lives and influencing how we make decisions. This experience is a a call to move toward living a more people-centered life. And in a people-centered life, we prioritize relationships and how we allocate our time and our attention and our energy. It means that when we think about how we define success, that we recognize that success is not just our ability to acquire wealth, power, and reputation, which are the modern day versions of success. But we recognize that success and ultimately our worth as people stems from something much more intrinsic, which is our ability to give and receive love. That's -hmm. what makes us human. That's something that we're all born with. And the way we, Give and receive love is most clearly done through relationships. That's why relationships are so powerful and important. And, you know, it's when we begin that journey to living a more people centered life, what we do is that we make it possible to create a more people centered world. I've spent so much time over the last year just thinking and dreaming about what it would be like if we had and lived in a people centered world. And I think a people centered world would be one in which we design our workplaces to support human connection. It would be one where we design our schools and our curricula around the idea that children need a foundation for healthy relationships from their earliest stages of their life, and that they should get that from their parents, from their schools and from their community. You know, people-centered society is also one where we recognize just how deeply intertwined our relationships are with our politics and our public dialogue. When we don't have relationships with each other, it makes it very hard to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. When we can't listen, we can't dialogue. When we can't dialogue, then we cannot come together and solve the big problems uh, that are facing society. And that is part of the conundrum that we find ourselves in as political polarization deepens in the united states and around the world it's hard to escape the conclusion that part of that is happening because we have allowed our relationships and connections with each other to dwindle and to diminish over time this moment is an opportunity for us to build the equivalent of a Marshall Plan for our country and the world. A Marshall Plan where we rebuild our health infrastructure, recognizing that we need to serve and care for all people. It's one where we realize that from an economic standpoint, that we need to create structures in our country that serve everyone. But it's perhaps most importantly, a time where we need a Marshall Plan when it comes to our culture, and our own beliefs, because shifting toward a people-centered society is fundamentally about one credo, sort of the central credo of this book, which I would sum up in three words, and that is put people first. Mm -hmm. A society that puts people first looks very different than a society that seeks to maximize economic return or one that seeks to maximize the acquisition of power. It's not that wealth and power and fame are bad in and of themselves. Pursuing those are absolutely fine. The question is, where do people fall in relation to those pursuits on our priority list? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, myself included, would say that in our lives, we have somehow allowed a gap to develop between our stated priorities, which are often people, and our lived priorities, which are often work. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: this to me is a wake-up call to put people first, to build a life and a society that reflect those deeper values. And if we do that, then I believe that we can emerge from this pandemic more deeply connected, more resilient, healthier, and more fulfilled than before the pandemic began.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that we see that, that desire, that belief, right? That it's really hard to put a price on a human life and that economic suffering is better, more palatable, more manageable than letting, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people die unnecessarily. I mean, that gives me a lot of faith and, so long as in the recovery we are reprioritizing again, reprioritizing people and making sure that our mo- most vulnerable are cared for, and I think that's what—that's where I struggle in, in this moment I don't think I'm alone. Is not that I feel not that there's much to do because it's again this massive systemic issue, but how can we? Recalibrate and rebalance so that it is not. Because one thing that's obviously very clear in this crisis is that this is there are the haves and the have-nots, and that inequity is is very. And I say this as a have, you know, it's it's so it's so unpalatable and unfair, and I can't imagine being on the other side of it and. You know, I agree with what you said. It's like it starts with service. And I would I I hope that versions of that emerge, you know, just thinking of that example in the beginning of the book. That's so beautiful. And it's like you can feel your heart swell. But you were talking about post 9-11 and all of the people stranded on lower Manhattan and they couldn't get people off. And so they put out a call to citizens with boats. And you write, the response was swift. Scores of boats pierced the dense cloud of dust and debris and ferried their frightened, suit covered passengers to safety. In nine hours, the 911 11 boat lift rescued nearly half a million people, becoming the largest boat rescue in the world's history, even larger than the Dunkirk evacuation of World War II. Vincent Artolino, the captain of the Amberjack, said his wife thought he was crazy for wanting to take his boat toward Manhattan that morning after the call but he knew that he had to go. Never go through life saying you should saying you should have, he said later, reflecting on the decision. And I think about that. It's like how stunning and beautiful. And like, I think we all are desperate for an opportunity to do something that meaningful. And, you know, how do we create those opportunities? Like where, is it small things? Because not many of us can go, Dunkirk style and save people or pull body pull babies out of burning buildings but like how do we how do we create that in small mundane daily ways where we f- we feel the impact that we can have on on helping each other
1: gosh you know you just hearing you read that that story from 9-11 every time I hear it it just it gets me choked up a bit because what that story shows us and what our response to disasters and emergency reveals to us is it shows us who we really are. That in our greatest moments of crisis, when the chips are down, that we show up for each other. Mm -hmm. And we do so often at the risk of our own safety. You know, in the midst of COVID-19, we've seen so many doctors and nurses and healthcare workers show up in hospitals across the country, despite not having masks to pr- protect themselves, despite knowing that their own families uh, were worried about them. Uh, we saw them do that because they recognized that, that this is what we do as human beings. We show up for each other in a crisis. And the crisis doesn't always have to be as stark as 9-11 or COVID-19. But there are countless ways that we can show up for each other in our day-to-day lives. A comforting word when somebody is struggling, giving them the opportunity to just hear them out, giving them a chance to talk about what they're feeling and providing a safe, judgment-free space where they can do that. Remembering to call somebody a few days after they go through a hard time to check on them. These are all small but powerful acts of service. These are ways that we reach out to each other and help each other heal. You know, what I think of when I recall these extraordinary examples of humanity and response in the midst of crises is I see people not trying to be somebody that they're not, or striving for an ephemeral but unsustainable ideal. I see people demonstrating who they really are. I see them putting on display humanity at its best. The whole call for us to create and to live a people-centered life, to rebuild our connections with each other, this is not a call to transform our lives into, into something that is unnatural. It's not a call for us to become someone that we're not. This is a call for us to return to who we were meant to be, mm-hmm. which is people who have love to give, who are open to receiving love, who recognize that we may go fast alone, but we go farther together. That's who we were meant to be. And sometimes it takes a crisis to pull back the curtain and to reveal to us just how fully we may have drifted from those natural intrinsic ideals. But that's the opportunity we have now, is to take stock of our lives and to ask ourselves the question, what kind of life do I want to live going forward? What role do people play in that life? How am I going to prioritize relationships recognizing that they are the greatest source of healing that we have? That's the set of questions that we've got to ask ourselves. And I think that if we build the kind of people-centered life I know we can, that we won't just create greater health and well-being for ourselves, but we will build the foundations for the kind of world that our children truly deserve I think about my three-year-old and my two-year-old and I love them so much. And I am one of those overprotective parents who is trying to shield them from all kinds of things all the time. And my wife and my parents yell at me for being too too much of a helicopter parent, (laughs) even at this age. (laughs) But I I know that as much as I want to protect them, that I can't protect them from everything. I know that When they go to school, they're going to depend on other kids to have a positive experience. They're going to depend on whether or not their teachers look out for them as they grow up. that Whether strangers respond when they stumble and fall down and help them up, that's out of our hands. Mm -hmm. But that's why as my wife Alice and I think about what we want to do in the world at this stage of our life, few things have become more important than trying to create the kind of world that would sustain and support and embrace all of our children. The kind of world where we really do recognize that love is an intrinsic strength we have and the source of our power, a kind of world that doesn't chide or look down on people for being vulnerable, but that recognizes that we are all engaged in a shared struggle. And it's a kind of world that recognizes we've got to be there for each other and help each other up. That's the kind of world that I want my children to not only inherit, but to contribute to, to help strengthen. Mm-hmm. And that's why, to me, this subject of social connection, of building a more connected world is at the heart of what we need to do if we want to, to ensure that the world is healthier and more resilient than it is now.
0: How, as someone who was sort of unceremoniously removed uh, during the Trump presidency and thinking about how totally polarized we've become, even around roles that are actually not very political, right, like yours, how do we move past that? I thought it was, I'd never heard of this bias that you talk about, the motive attribution asymmetry, which tells us that our beliefs are grounded in love while our opponents are based on hatred. How do we soften that? Like, how do we reframe the way that we come at each other? Because it seems like I'm certain during this time there there will be some softening, right? Yet we also see some, ex- some extremism already emerging, and we're still in the middle of the crisis. So how do you as someone who has worked in the political world, but not theoretically politically, like how do you, how do you, how do we all manage that? How do we get to a place of connection and conversation on a big, huge scale? Does it start person by person?
1: That's a great question, Elise. And what we're seeing play out on a national and global scale in terms of our polarization, I think is made possible by the fact that on a much more granular level, at a grassroots level, that we have allowed our ties to weaken. And that's not just ties with family and friends. I'm talking about community ties, about how well we know our neighbors, about how committed we feel to our community, about how engaged we are in helping serve Mm -hmm. those in need who live in in our area. And because we don't understand each other as well, it becomes not only harder to dialogue, but easier to attribute bad motives and bad intentions to other people. That's what motive attribution asymmetry is all about. If you agree with me, then I think you're motivated by love and good intentions. If you disagree with me, then I think you're motivated by hatred. But there's an important caveat here which is that motive attribution asymmetry is made possible most of all when we don't have relationships with others. Mm. If you think about the family members or friends you may have who have very different political views from you, you may be able to have conversations with them even though you disagree. If one of you was in a crisis, it's so likely the other person would show up because you care about each other and you're able to have dialogue and to give the other person the benefit of the doubt because you have a relationship, because you understand that this person is more than their point of view, but they're a human being with the same concerns as mine, some of the same fears and worries, some of the same hopes and aspirations. You see them as a human being, not as a point of view and What's happened with technology is because many of our dialogues have moved online, we're having more conversations, or I should say more exchanges, because some of them I don't think even raise the level of conversation, but we're having more exchanges and interactions in the complete absence of relationship. So that makes Mm -hmm. it easier to say hurtful things to people. makes it easier to judge other people and put them in a box. If we really want to overcome the polarization we have as a society, we have to recognize that dialogue is built on relationship. We don't get people to come together of opposing views by putting them in a room and saying, okay, talk about all the things you disagree about and then and let's find some middle path here. That's not how human beings work. You have to build trust and understanding. You have to build a relationship first. And then you make it possible for people to talk to each other, to share openly, to truly listen to each other. That's at the heart of what we've got to do, whether it's in our families or in our communities or more broadly, like in our country and in the world. And part of the reason I came to, to recognize that was actually, ironically, because of my experience working in this very politicized world as a Surgeon General, But it's not because of the conversations I necessarily had in D.C. It was because of the conversations I had all around the country with people who, despite the different places in which they lived and the different politics that they lived by, they had so much in common. They had so many shared concerns. They cared deeply about their kids and about their future. They worried about their parents and their health. They spent an inordinate amount of time worrying about their kids' education and about economic security. They had so many shared aspirations and concerns, but they also had this extraordinary decency and generosity to them. I saw in community after community that when when push came to shove, people would step up for the people around them, that they would donate their time and their money, even when they didn't have a lot of time or money to give but they would do that when they saw somebody in need i saw in other words glimpses of the human spirit in so many types of people and it reminded me that despite all this noise about our polarization despite the fact that so much of that disagreement occupies more and more of our our shared experience that at our hearts we are fundamentally human beings having a human experience and we are still despite all of this, deeply connected to each other. That's what gives me Mm -hmm. faith that we can overcome the polarization in which we live, that we can build a world of greater connection and of shared concern. Because this is not just who we're meant to be, but it's who we often still are in those private moments that don't get covered in the headlines, but which are still the ways that we react and interact with each other, with generosity, with kindness, with trust. Those are our instincts. They may be papered over and buried under cynicism and and trauma and fear and worry, but that's still who we all want to be, people who can exist with each other in these trusted, generous, kind relationships.
0: Yeah. It's like I think Brian Stevenson had said something to the extent too of like it's hard to hate people close up And I think that we get so attached to these concepts, right? These tribal political theories and ideas or issues that we we lose track of the people. And it's, you know, it's like all the research suggests that we're so much more altruistic and generous and moved to help when it's when we see the picture of the one child, right? The Syrian, the two the two-year-old from Syria washed up dead or On the flip side, a child who has overcome and persevered, like the the desire to help the individual is so profound and intense. And I think we just lose sight of that because we get so fixated on concepts or groups or things that do not have a face.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and we, in a time where it's so easy now because of technology and the reach of media to zoom out, and talk Mm -hmm. about the big picture and about abstract politics and economic theories, this is a time where it's actually more important for us to zoom in, to get close to people, even if that's uncomfortable, to understand who they are. And what I find often is that as awkward as it can feel sometimes to reach out to people and to ask how they're doing or to pause and say hello to a stranger in an elevator or to take a risk and be open with sharing with a friend, we almost inevitably feel better after those experiences. I have so many times not said hello to someone in an elevator because I worried it might be awkward or I'd be intruding into their space. And just about almost every time I have regretted not doing that. (laughs) But there have also been times where I have reached out and said hello. And there's never been a single moment where I did that that I thought, God, I wish I hadn't said hello to them. The risks in life that we regret most are the ones we don't take. And I'm not saying that we mm-hmm. should be indiscriminate with risk, especially when it comes to safety. It's not to say that if you're in an unsafe environment or you are getting an instinct that somebody is, is you know an unsafe individual, that you should go and interact with them. Not at all. But there are plenty of moments in our life in elevators, in a coffee shop when we're wondering if we should say hello to the person next to us when even in the grocery store when we're waiting in line to, to check out and we have an opportunity to say hello to the person waiting in front of or behind us there are plenty of moments like that but the actual risk is a lot lower than it may seem and the return in terms of a positive interaction that leaves both people feeling more connected that return is often so much higher
0: i agree Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Vivek Murthy. For more on Dr. Murthy and his work, head to vivekmurthy.com. That's V-I-V-E-K-M-U-R-T-H-Y. And make sure to grab a copy of his book, Together, available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.